Yeah. So if you want to start off by introducing yourself and talking about your background, and then from there, we can talk more about uh, the politics of Rwanda. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Yvonne Gatete. Um, so I was born and raised in Rwanda. I came to, to the U.S. in like 2020. Yeah, I got admitted at Piat School at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm doing computer science. Yeah, I'm like, I have a twin brother. That's the one with money, but uh-huh. yeah, that's cool. It. Yeah, so uh, if you want to just kind of talk about like the politics of Rwanda right now, um, President Kagame and kind of like the past couple years of Rwandan history, and then like left-wing politics in Rwanda, kind of what that looks like. Um, what are the, are there like different parties that participate on the left in Rwanda? Are there like activists on the left? Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. I think speaking from the subjective view of the, like the country and the governing system of the country. Um, so I would say like for me, myself, I think it's, it's a, like my mom is a genocide survivor and my, mm-hmm. my dad. So I feel like, yeah, the politics and everything that can like bring the country together and bring peace and security and growing up in a country with like full of like peace, if I get this, or security and full of like seeing the government caring about like citizens and everything. So in the subjective view as someone who grew up in London, I feel like I don't know much about the gov- governing system, but I know that whatever the politics is, it's working for, for like the citizens of the country and people right. live in the country. Um, speaking of the left wing, I think, yeah, I think there are some, some people opposes like Okagame and his ideas and his government system. Um, yeah, I, I, there are like some, like there is a dominant party called like FBA, like Rwanda Patriotic right. Force, uh, which is the kind they, they like, basically the party that took over the country like, mm-hmm. after the genocide. Um, and there is also like other parties like PL, uh, which are also in the country actually, uh, um, also have like representatives in the parliament. Yeah, so basically like in terms of structure and what people can see, there is like democracy in Rwanda. Um, but I wouldn't say that there are no oppositions like in terms of people who oppose Kagame, like outside, especially outside the country. Right. Um, yeah, people who don't agree with his ideas, people who says that uh, he violates human human rights, and I think even Human Rights Watch like has some some issues with him. So, right. but yeah, like speaking generally, I think generally it's working for Rwandans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm interested in that too. Um, in thinking about the kind of the Chinese involvement in Rwanda, like I know we're in a class together talking about. China-Africa relations and Rwanda comes up a lot as an example of a country with very close relations with with China. There was like debt cancellation for Rwanda in 2009, I think, and there's been a lot of partnership with the the FOCAC, uh, the the Forum for uh, China-Africa relations or, or cooperation, I think. So, from your perspective, being from Rwanda, what is the Chinese involvement? Is it a positive, is it a negative, or is it kind of still up in the air? Uh, I think I think it's kind of hard to tell. But yeah, from what I can see, as we used to, we used to say in class, from what I can see, like the outside that I can see, mm-hmm. it's a positive influence because like they're helping us build roads and 
uh, buildings and infrastructures for like development and everything. Yeah, so I feel like I had some people complain, like there are some workers who are too Chinese, they say that, oh, they're they are like crucial in how they treat us mm -hmm. and everything. But beside that, I think everything else looks fine like right. on the outside. I'm not sure how I would say it if I tried to go deep and see the politics and everything afterwards, but from the outside, it looks good. Like the relationship is really good. Right. Yeah. And how, and with that, like, what is the relationship of Rwanda to economically to other countries in Africa as well? Like Rwanda is a, a large economic powerhouse, despite being such a small country, participates very actively in the African Union. So how did, how do you perceive like Rwandan efforts to also as a kind of a now a very stable country economically? It's like invest in other African countries. Um, yeah, I feel like, um, okay, we don't have like a lot of investors. Like, we are still like, we are, we are still like one of the developing countries. Mm -hmm. So we are not yet developed to try to, to invest much in other countries. But I would say, um, yeah, some, some, some like, some people in Rwanda, like, especially like people who have like businesses. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of Rwandese invest in Kenya, right? Invest in Kenya, Uganda, yeah. um, and also sometimes Burundi, but usually Kenya and, mm -hmm. and Uganda, and also like Uganda, Uganda people who goes to like buy some, to just purchase some stuff that they're going to sell in Rwanda. Yeah, I would say like, it's pretty good, especially because of the stability of the security and everything. So I feel like it's good to like like it's. It's kind of easy now. There is like this thing in East African community, like the East right. African countries, where yeah. to come from one country to another, you just have to use your ID, like right. basically no passport, no not anything. You just have to use your, your ID. So I think that that helped like the businesses, like even even the trade between like countries and the investment between countries. Yeah. But I would say that yeah, we are also still looking for investors in the country. Yeah, we are still developing the system. Yeah. yeah. And on that that note too, the the East African community of states, like how does that organization operate? How does the I think there's been like a plan too to create like its own currency, like an East African currency. So how does that regional organization kind of operate as like a developmental model for like a region of Africa? Um okay, since so since the time that I heard that. Yeah, I've started hearing like about East African community, I think in 2007. I'm not sure when it started, but I would say that, yeah, from what I can see, they like, especially in terms of security, I think they work together in order to establish mm -hmm. security. Yeah, sometimes they're like, like recently Uganda had some issues with Uganda, though it's, I think right now it's resolved. But right. yeah, sometimes we have, um, we don't agree, like countries don't agree, like, on everything like in East African community. But I feel like the idea of even having East African community is a really great idea. Yeah. They haven't achieved some of the stuff like, like one currency and but I think like even like my mom used to go to Uganda to like buy some stuff. Right. But now having to only use her ID, that is like extremely helpful for her. Right. Like, she just have to have the ticket and go to Uganda. Right. Which is really great. Yeah, I feel like the idea of even having East African community is really good to for the future, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, we haven't achieved they haven't achieved everything they say, yeah. but I think right now it's fine. Yeah. And do you think like more uh emphasis should be placed on this kind of like regional cooperation, 
kind of sort of going after like a pan-Africanism, but more on like a regional level? Do you think that like helps countries in kind of fostering closer relations, moving past old colonial borders? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, speaking of like um, pan-Africanism and everything, mm -hmm. I think Kagame was actually talking about aid and rules. Literally saying how aid is not, right. is not like it's kind of alone that the UN was basically trying to like reflect the idea that oh at some point we have to be dependent as Africans right. and I feel like in terms of Pan Africanism and like post colonialism and everything like you can see the influence from like all the countries they want to pass that I know there are like a lot of barriers that they have to go over but right. you can see that that's the goal it's it's the ultimate goal but it's not. It's not as near as we want it to be, but right. it's the ultimate goal, yeah. Yeah. I guess another topic that I'm interested in on that note is uh, Rwanda being an old Belgian colony and very much having the French, like a very powerful colonial force as part of like Francophone Africa. So I'm, I'm interested from your perspective, like how active is the are the French in like neocolonialism I don't think Belgium as much per se, but yeah, more like the French. How how big of a problem is like neocolonialism from your perspective in, in Rwanda? Um, I think in Rwanda it's actually not that bad. I think in in Rwanda it's actually really nice right now. I'm not sure like if you know this, but the French played a crucial part in the genocide. In the genocide yeah. mm -hmm. And they actually admitted it like a few years ago, like a right. couple of years ago. But basically, right now, we are kind of in control. Right now, you can see that the country is in control right. of what we, we, we are receiving from my friends and everything. And even like one of the minister of foreign, foreign affairs, her name is Louise Mushichawi. She's now the president of the Francophone right. countries like in Africa. Actually, it's around the world, I think so. Yeah, basically, like, I think that we have control over it, especially in terms of like France investing in, mm -hmm. in Africa and I don't think we have a lot of relationship with Belgium, but I would say like in terms of like, I think it's under control right now. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't have like strings attached to everything they gave us, yeah. which is good, but yeah. And on, on that note too, like what you just mentioned, the, the French role in the genocide, do you think there will ever be like accountability for that? Because I, I've read a little bit about it and, you know, like, the, as you said, like the French tried to cover it up for a long time yeah. until it was kind of documents were coming out and revealing kind of how they had helped foster Hutu nationalism, had been giving weapons to certain groups and had prevented like the evacuation of, of certain regions. Do you think there will ever be like really like accountability for that? Or do you think like it's impossible to hold a European country like accountable for what it's doing? I hope so. I hope so because right now it's 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 like the right like the right steps in the right direction. I think I my mom used to tell me that she didn't even know that they would actually admit it. Right. So the fact that they even admitted it and they said, Oh yeah, we did this and we asked for forgiveness, that is even like the step in the right direction. And I think I hope that they will like be accountable for that and maybe have some reversion for what they did. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that there is like, I guess, kind of in like the relevant, um, like world, like discussions right now. So and I know, like, right now, a lot of people are focused very heavily on what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah. And there's a level of like, media analysis of it that is very 
urgent, like there's a level of urgency to say, we have to do something about Ukraine, we have to get involved and so on. But when that was happening, when there was, you know, genocide in, in Rwanda caused and promoted by Western colonialism, there was not as much urgency. And in many cases, like, uh, I know there was, a, you know, there was like a UN, uh, the, the UN peacekeeper commander in Rwanda was had to plead basically over and over again for some level of intervention. And there was no response really from the West uh, to, to prevent the genocide. It was obviously, there was intervention to promote it by the French. So do you think there's like a level of hypocrisy in how the Western media and the Western like perception of events in the global South and in, in the instance of the Rwandan genocide, how do you think that hypocrisy leads to real harm being done in these instances? Yeah, um, I feel like it's it's actually what they're, they're sometimes accusing Kagame for, like Human Rights Watch. Right. I feel like the idea of Human Rights Watch is attached to some other stuff, like yeah. the interest of countries, right. especially Western countries in this scenario. And I, I feel like the genocide, when it was happening, I feel like even Clinton knew it, like everyone knew it right. the genocide is happening. Yeah. But the US had like lost a lot of families in Somalia, so they're like, oh, we are not going to right. accept more yeah. to, to. But it's human right, right? People are dying. Right. If it's human right watch, then you should care about it. So I feel like the idea of human right watch is attached to other stuff. Like who is interesting in this? Mm. What the like country is going to gain from from what is happening in Africa, which which is a sad story. And I feel like, yeah, there's some hypocrisy and it's the reality of life, but at some point we have Africans have to like go a step of that and say, oh, we have to define our own our own governing system, our own like democracy. We have to like strive for our own independence, which is what I think Rwanda is doing at this point. Yeah. Though like they might say, oh, it's it's um, an authoritarian country and everything. Right. But I feel like at least at least what they're doing is preserving the human rights for Africa, for Rwandans, for almost 12 million people in Rwanda. Right. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, at some point, it's the idea of human rights watch is kind of implicating it. Yeah, it's definitely like a level of hypocrisy to yeah. talk about human rights. And the U.S. does talk about human rights a lot and then really turn a, a blind eye in Rwanda, allowed it to happen. And in many cases, it, with the the case of France actually like promoting it yeah. um I'm I'm interested too about the conflict in the Congo as well I know that's very still very relevant for for people in Rwanda um starting right after the genocide the the two Congo civil wars that occurred and still in many ways like in the eastern parts of the DRC are still very much affecting stability within the DRC and and impacting Rwanda so how does that play a role in in daily life in Rwanda? Like, how does how are the politics impacted by the instability in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? And then also just to like kind of do more of a historical analysis, how has U.S. intervention in the DRC against Patrice Lumumba, uh, Belgian and, and also French intervention support for Mobutu and when it was Zaire? Yeah. How has that led to this huge instability in? in in one of the largest, most minerally rich countries in Africa, and that how's that impacted Rwanda as a neighbor? Yeah, um, so I, I I would say like in terms of Rwandans and 
what is happening in Congo. I feel like um, after like the genocide, there was like this governing system that was basically the pre-genocide pre gov 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 mm -hmm. government in Rwanda. So after the genocide, their army fled to Congo, right? Mm -hmm. So it's called FDLF. So the army that fled to Congo, so now it's a rebellious army that is planning to attack Rwanda and everything. Yeah. So like basically, Rwandans had interest in stopping those people who are trying to like, like, come back, come back to Rwanda. And yeah. Yeah. Like, so I feel like in that case, I understand why the country Rwanda is interested in going to East Congo, especially to stop those people. Right. I remember in like 2015, they actually like there was this part of near to Congo called Gisenyi, they actually like um, sent bombs there to like basically civilians and right. bombs. And the country decided, oh, we are actually going to attack if this is this is happening. Right. But it's, I think it's too political and it's too complicated. There's also M23, yeah. which is also a part. They used to say that it's from Rwanda. I'm not sure that it's from Rwanda. And I don't think that it's from Rwanda. But yeah, I think it's complicated. But one thing that I know for sure, if they're trying to like... Um, come back to Rwanda and like basically destroy everything that the government is building in terms of security and development, then I understand why Rwanda should try to stop them. Right. But I'm not sure that I know all the politics behind yeah. Yeah, Rwanda and Congo and everything. But I would also say that there is like instabilities in East Congo, right? Right. The UN has been there for like a lot of years. Yeah. Yeah. And the UN has a lot of like in terms of I mean, everything. They are capable of maintaining yeah, this. Yeah, and they haven't really been able to. Yeah, they haven't been able to do it. So that is also a question mark. And in terms of Patrice Wumumba, um, I feel like it's a sad story. Like every, like every envisions that he had for Congo and Africa, I feel like it's a sad story. But and also we have to remember that Congo is literally the richest country in terms of right. natural resources. So everyone is interested in going there, which. Which explains the security instability that right. is there. So, yeah, I hope that hopefully I have a Congolese friend, and we always talk about this. I hope that one day Congo can achieve the level of security that they need. Right. Like it's it's just a simple a simple request: security and peace. That's, right. That's yeah, and and it's interesting too, as you mentioned with the UN, like. I know one of Kagame's main criticisms of the UN and in particular the International Criminal Court has been they're very focused on prosecuting uh, criminals from, you know, war criminals from the Congo crisis, from uh, from everything that's been happening. And just in general, it appears that there's like a huge bias against yeah. um, those uh, prosecuting those who come from Africa as opposed to a lack of desire to prosecute someone like Henry Kissinger in the U.S. or something like that. Yeah. So he, I think he's been kind of accurate in that regard of saying that there's like a clear bias in the in the U.N. and the International Criminal Court. Um, you know, even though it, it's it, important to hold accountability, it's very much as you're saying with Human Rights Watch, it's accountability for some and and kind of impunity for others. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. It's. It's really sad what is happening in Congo, and like only thinking about the the like potential that Congolese have. I have right. a friend who come from Goma. She told me how like they don't even know that besides medicine, they don't even besides medicine and civil construction, which is like civil engineering. Yeah, they don't even know like there are 
that there are other majors in college. They, right. don't, they don't know anything about computer science. They don't know anything about economics. So for them, it's just civil and 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 um and like being a doctor. So they don't they don't even have that access to development. And they they have like they are literally the richest country in Africa. Right. So they should be like the most developed country in Africa. Right. So yeah, it's sad and hopefully, hopefully they will gain that stability and that development that they deserve. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think my my other questions are just like beyond the Congo and, and Rwanda, uh, Rwanda's relations with the Congo, other countries within Eastern Africa, and then other relations across the African continent. What are the relationship between Rwanda and Burundi like now after the, the genocide and all the instability in the 1990s and then you mentioned relations with Uganda. I know that's been a very long history of Kagame coming from Rwanda, yeah. uh, coming from uh, Uganda, and bringing forces into Rwanda during the genocide. So, what are there? And then Kenya and Somalia as well, Tanzania. Like, to what extent? I guess in Tanzania, is the is there like inspiration from someone like Julius Nyerere and like his model of politics? So, what are the relationships with other countries in Eastern Africa like? I feel like right now it's really good. Um, I wouldn't say, I'm not sure the relationship between Rwanda and Burundi is fine right now. Mm. But I would say that it's better than it was before. Uh, When, like, Isaac Salen, Pierre Nguyenziza was the president. At that time, it was really bad to the extent that a lot of Burundians came from Burundi to Rwanda. And actually, like, we had... My mom was was hosting some of the Burundians oh, okay. like next to our home. Right. Yeah, so it was kind of sad and it's against human right watch. Right. But yeah, yeah. Um I would just say like with other countries with Kenya, I know that we have mm-hmm. a really stable good relationship with Tanzania, with with Uganda now we have a good relationship after mm-hmm. like some discussions that happened recent, in recent days. Right. Yeah, so generally we are really fine with other East African countries, except I think in this case, Burundi, which I'm not sure how it's going right now. Right. Yeah, I would have to look into that. Right. So another another thing I'm interested in is um, what is the legacy of the genocide today in, in Rwanda? Like, how is it talked about? And then I'm also curious about the assassination of uh, of the president. I can't quite remember his name, but the assassination that triggered the the genocide to begin. That I know there's like a lot of conspiracy theories about that. And I'm wondering kind of how is this thought about? Do people know like the truth of what happened or are curious to find out all of the events leading up to the genocide? So yeah, I guess what are people's reflections on it in modern Rwanda? Um so like I think the genocide is still a big part of Rwanda. Right. Like I'm I'm I post genocide king, but I know almost any everything about like the genocide right. and how everything happened. So I feel like yeah, we have a week, a conversion week, um like on the seventh of April, like it's like yeah, on the seventh of April, like the whole week, they like all the radios, all the right. TV stations, they like make their pre- playing music from like the commemoration of the genocide mm-hmm. movies about the conversion genocide documentaries. So I feel like that week is so crucial to the country and it just reminds us of where we're coming from, right. which helps us to think about where we want to get to and just analyze everything that happened because like the wounds are still fresh. Like 
there are still a lot of offense, genocide offense and everything. Right. Um, so I would say that it's, which is crazy. It's kind of crazy how remembering can help in the, like, it's a sad story. So right. I don't think we should, like some people would say, oh, you don't have to remember a sad story. Yeah. But I feel like going deep, remembering um, your families, like people crying again, like that pain itself, it's so strong that, it unites us and reminds us that oh, we are choosing reconciliation and unity, right. and we feel like this is where we want. We always want to remember this so that we can develop ourselves and not go back to how it used to be. Right. Um, so I feel like the genocide is like commemorating genocide is really crucial. Not forgetting the genocide right. is really crucial. Um, so the other like I don't think that yeah, um, the assassination of the president might have triggered. The genocide, but the genocide was prepared way before it. Like right. there are like some ministers and some government officials saying, "Oh, there is a Holocaust that is going to come." They used yeah. to say that, and they used to say, "Oh, we are going to like make sure that none of the Tutsis uh, is going to remain." So the genocide was actually prepared way before. Yeah. So I feel like that was just as you said, it was kind of a trigger, but it's also like it's also complicated how he died. Um, yeah, I don't know who killed him or anything, but I I would just say that yeah, it was just something that happened that night, mm-hmm. but it was a planned thing that was supposed to happen. Right. And the professor, I think he told us that uh almost eight hundred government officials who were against the idea of the genocide were also killed that week that right. the president died. Yeah. I feel like it's complicated. It's kind of as you said, it's complicated how he died, but I feel like at this point, it's it's a sad story and everything, but yeah, commemorating it and remembering the genocide, it's really important. And yeah, I feel like yeah, I feel like um, it doesn't. It's not as much of importance to the Rwandese to know oh why did he die on it or anything. Right. They just want to say oh the genocide was prepared people die. We don't want this thing to happen again. Right. And that's it. Yeah. yeah. And how today you're talking about reflecting and healing and, and especially reconciliation. So how today is there an effort on the part of the government, on the part of ordinary Rwandans to move past the kind of divide and conquer um, kind of Belgian and French imposed tribal identities opposed to one another, Tutsi versus Hutu? How is there an effort today to form more of a national identity, more of an African identity rather than like a tribally divided, pitted against one another identity, which is imposed from like a colonial mentality? How has there been like, because uh, it's it's difficult, right? As yeah. you're saying, like between, there's still probably a lot of, um, of open wounds yeah. from uh, between Tutsis and, and Hutus. So how do you reconcile that and form like a Rwandan identity that doesn't necessarily forget what happened, but is willing to say exactly as you're saying, like that is the, the result of like this colonial divide and conquer policy. And now, you know, forming a, a United nation that can be strong against like kind of yeah. colonial, neo-colonial imposition. So how do you think that is being developed in Rwanda? What's the importance of that? I guess. Yeah. Um, so as I said before, my mom, my mom is a genocide survivor. So mm-hmm. she, she lost almost all her family in the genocide. So I, 
I would say that forgiveness is really hard. Like, yeah, it's personal. That's the first thing, and it's hard to understand and to force someone to forgive another another person. So I would say that it's really hard to like say, "Oh, forgiveness," just like that. Right. But I feel like the government encourages people to forgive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have like um, they have like uh, organizations that are in mm-hmm. charge of that. Like, there's this organization called Synergy, which is like for just commemorating genocide and like taking survivors, talking to them. And I know like they actually used to take survivors to visit people who killed basically their families. And some, they would just put it on television and mm. someone who lost all her family and the guy who killed all his family, right. they would just sit down together and talk and forgive one another. So even that, like showing that on television, that is even enough to like encourage other people to forgive. Right. But I feel like forgiveness is, you can't force forgiveness, but everyone knows that, oh, there is, we want to get past this and actually develop ourselves. And I feel like it's really important to have a president who is a role model. Like, if your president is a role model for that, like, like, specifically, it's what happened before. The president was a role model of hating Tutsis and everything, speaking about how he doesn't want Tutsis to come back to mm-hmm. the country, the cup is full and everything. Right, he was part of the Hutu power. Yeah. So that that influence of the president over the like citizens over the Andes is the same influence that is happening right now, but in a different way. Right now the president is encouraging people to forgive, to reconcile, to unite. Mm-hmm. So like even seeing the president encouraging people committed to that to that um forgiveness and reconciliation. So that also motivates people to say, oh, what I'm doing is not actually right if I'm right. still hating on these people. Yeah. I just have to change this since my society doesn't even approve it. Right. So I feel like the government is really important, especially in this case, like President Bokagame. Like I think he deserves all the credit right. in terms of trying to reunite and develop the country and also trying to make sure that people don't forget it because... Right. The next generation knows almost everything about the genocide right. and how it happened and everything. Yeah. They teach it in schools. Right. They make sure that people don't forget it. And I feel like the coming generations, they're going to be more forgiving. Yeah. And they're going to like know more of the story so that it can't happen again in Rwanda. Right. Yeah. yeah and, and when it's taught and when people are thinking about it today, to what extent are they taught about the like when you were taught it about it in school, did you learn about the French role? Did you learn about the Belgian, like, you know, divide and conquer mentality? So to what extent do they really go and show how colonialism played a huge role in the genocide? Yeah. Um, yeah, they actually go deeper. Like they actually go deeper to try to, to like, explain the divide. I mean, because at some point we feel like, like especially the West is judging Africa and saying, "Oh, you're doing this and this and this. You're right. killing one another and everything." Yeah. But they're literally the one who like you can't come and divide people, and then when they kill each other, you say, "Oh, right. why are you killing one another?" Exactly. So I feel like they don't want to like take the blame off them because we're not the only country who has a divide and conquer. But we also have to acknowledge the influence of colonization in, right. in the division of Andes and understand that the history tells us that Hutus and Tutsi were actually the same type of people. They just divided them in order. They were actually social hierarchies. 
and they weren't like created to any ethical division. It was you can be a Tutsi if you work hard. Right. If you are a Tutsi and you don't work hard, you could just be a Hutu. So it, it was just like that. It was a, an economic uh, hierarchy and nothing related to ethics division. So right. understanding that, okay, personally for me, understanding that helped me to realize, oh, actually we are the same people. We are not different. It's just the mentality that they gave us. We are actually the same people. Right. And yeah, I think it, it encouraged me to like actually also try to like talk to other people and especially here at school. Right. Talk to people and oh, don't just blame Randis for the genocide. Right. Look at how it started, look at the divide and conquer and everything. And understanding that I think it's a crucial part in the reconciliation and, and forgiveness of Randis because we understand that part of okay, the cause of everything was actually the divide and conquer yeah. yeah. I'm I'm interested too in in your personal like education and learning more about it. What thinkers, what have you been reading or like which historical thinkers on the left have been kind of an inspiration to you in like reading and learning more about colonialism, learning more about the alternative um, against imperialism. Yeah. So who in particular do you think is like an inspiration? Uh, right now, the most inspirational person is uh, Thomas Sankara. Yeah. yeah. Um, like his commitment to like anti-imperialism anti and yeah. to the dependency and um, to, the, to, to the independence of Africa. And yeah, just his dreams, I think he, was too ambitious that yeah. he wasn't able to achieve everything that right. he wanted. But looking at how Africans live and looking to the to the life that Africans are living right now, it's so hard to not be ambitious about yeah. achieving the economic right. develop the economic dependency and independence in general. Like he envisioned almost everything that we're seeing right now. Right. He envisioned yeah. new occurrences, envisioned everything. He was like, we should start right now to try to be dependent. And I'm actually surprised on how he was able to achieve some of the stuff he achieved yeah. in his like four years of leadership. Mm -hmm. So I feel like he's an inspiration for me and I feel like sometimes we say, oh, uh, this thing can't be achieved and we are just stuck in that area of saying, oh, it can't be achieved, it can't be achieved, right. but we should start taking actually steps with the few things that we have, mm -hmm. steps to try to like think about how Africa, in this case Rwanda, can achieve it its economy, like an independent economy, independent economy without the strings from the West or China or any, right. anywhere else. Yeah, he's so inspirational for me because of how he tried to like achieve mm -hmm. what is almost impossible to Africans. Right. Yeah. And thinking about that, so the, the rhetoric of independence, self-determination, particularly economic development, yeah. How do you think Rwanda is a great example of answering exactly what Sankara was saying of contrasting neocolonialism, like being against dependency on the West? How do you think Rwanda can also serve as an inspiration to other African countries as a, a nation that went through such a, a tragic period of history, yeah. but now today is very much independent, has developed and pushed against this dependency yeah. um, and is still moving forward as like one of I think one of the fastest growing economies yeah. in in the African continent, independent of the West. And you mentioned too Paul Kagame's criticism of uh, Western 
foreign aid models like the IMF, like the World Bank, how is that ability to recognize them for what they are as like very much kind of these parasitic uh, models of, of, you know, going in and creating these, this debt trap for African countries? How is recognizing that helped Rwanda really move forward and how can it be an inspiration for other countries? Yeah. Um, so I feel like specifically to under the, the history of basically we were like at the lowest of the lowest and basically like we had no hope of ever developing after the genocide. So coming from that level of, of like not having any hope and to the level of saying, oh, we are actually one of the top developing countries right. throughout the whole throughout the whole world. It's just a motivation of saying, oh, we are actually not going to do something that is against our will because you're going to give us aid and everything. Right. So I feel like that idea of saying, oh, we came from far and we are ready to go back there if mm-hmm. this is going to be against our will. Right. So I feel like that is a history that we learn from. It's, it's a motivation of saying, we are actually not scared if you stop giving us aid. Right. I feel like after... Like with the M23 stuff, they mm-hmm. stopped giving, giving Africa, like Rwandan aid. Yeah. And they actually had this foundation called, um, uh, actually, yeah, I don't quite remember the name of the foundation, but it was literally a foundation where like investors and people who had stuff in Rwanda, they would just go together and say, oh, we are going to actually give money to the government mm-hmm. so that the government can achieve what the aid was doing. Basically, right. we're like, Oh, we don't want to get aid if we are going if you're going to detect what, what right. we are doing. Right. Also, the secondhand clothes, I remember they said, Oh, we had we used like secondhand clothes, mm-hmm. and basically the country is trying to develop the textile industry. So they banned secondhand clothes. Right. The the Trump administration, that was like a big yeah. policy. Yeah. yeah, it was against like basically they said, Oh, we're going to like give you sections and everything. But Kagame was like, whatever, like we are not scared of that right. because we, we know where we came from. So we are not basically scared of that. And I feel like that should be like a motivation to to other I know that it's other countries have different histories and everything. Yeah. But like not being scared of saying, oh, we can take this risk, but we know that in the like it, the ultimate goal is achieving this independence that we want to. So I feel like it can be a motivation to other countries just saying, oh, like. The ultimate, ultimate reasons why they get aid is fear that they're not going to like get yeah. that thing that they depend on, like the aid that they depend on on like development and everything. But like I feel like taking the risk of saying, oh, we are going to forget about this aid and try to develop ourselves, mm-hmm. especially if the aid is comes with strings on it, because sometimes aid is also really important. Like anyone who knows business knows that invest like being someone investing in you and paying them back, it's a reasonable deal, right? Right. So I feel like, yeah, not being scared to, to like, be poor but develop ourselves. Right. It's kind of complicating, but in the scenarios of Rwanda, I can understand how it's working, but it's a different history in other African countries, but I feel like we can still achieve that. Right. And definitely, like, that self-sufficiency that Rwanda has is an inspiration to other countries that are trying as you're saying like are struggling through their own history but are really like the biggest point of struggle is being so enveloped in western financial systems like the IMF and the World Bank 
And that's like a big point. And as you're mentioning, Rwanda still has like, has some way to go with the AGOA, the American uh, growth and opportunity, whatever it's called, the like American uh, investment situation that it has that led to that, that problem with the secondhand clothing. But the ability to tell the US like, if you know that is gonna compromise independence and self-sufficiency, then yeah. they're willing to, to do that to be independent above all, I think is very respectable. I guess my last couple like points would just be about what do you think the future of Rwanda looks like with future development, closer, closer relations with China. Like I know that the uh, China brought the, the vaccine to yeah. Rwanda when yeah. there was not an ability to get it from America. And that was like a big, and that has been a big impact for a lot of African countries who were blocked by this vaccine apartheid from like the West, but were able to have supplies come from China that have helped deal with the COVID crisis. So how do you think that, how do you think, I guess, for the first thing, like that situation with COVID has really shifted things in terms of priorities and, and like perspectives and relationships in Rwanda? And where do you see the future of that development in terms of like, again, like you're saying, not relying on China, still being very independent, but having, having options, having like a, a world with an alternative to choose from where you no longer only have the U.S. as like the only supplier of yeah. aid and medicine and Rwanda can have options that can help it deal with the, the problem like COVID, for, for example, like what is the future of these alternative relationships, I guess? Yeah, um, I, I, I don't think that I have much to say about, the, about it, but I would say that uh, especially right now, like, the country is kind of open because of the mm-hmm. vaccine that we received from China. So the right. U.S. gave us a vaccine, but yeah, um, I feel like yeah, it's it's at some point having adult friends is fine, but what if we, we can also be the ones who are doing the vaccines? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We we actually after after COVID and when everything was going on and everything was like, I I think I told you about this. Mm-hmm. The country started like. We have, they had like built um, the the facilities and everything needed mm-hmm. like every needed material to stop actually developing our own um, vaccines. Right. But the issue was like we didn't have the formulas and everything. Right. And actually, I feel like that is that was the right approach to it. Saying, right. oh yeah, China is there, the US is there, the West is there. But what if we actually do it ourselves? Right. And I think that was really good, and that was really like. Yeah, we weren't able to do it, but that is like as a it's game. a right mindset. Yeah, it's a right yeah. mindset, and I feel like if we can employ that mindset in almost everything, saying that oh, China is helping us and everything, but what if we make the ultimate goal to like make sure that we are doing this stuff on our own right. and producing this stuff on our own, and I feel like it will be if we have that mindset, then the economy of Rwanda is going to like be on linear rising curve. We are going to like keep on rising. Um, yeah, I feel like the future is bright, but yeah, I'm also excited to see like how it's going to be when the new president comes and everything. Right. Yeah, hopefully he will keep the same like the same like uh, economic policies and everything. Right. Yeah, I'm excited to see how it's going to be in the future. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, really. Yeah, I appreciate you. talking to you. Yeah.